The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting at verse 1, the apostle says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame, or literally I say this to shame you. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Well, we thankfully move out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we find ourselves plunged right into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we come to the issue of Christians suing each other, and this seems to be in all likelihood um, uh, another report that had been brought, although Paul does not say it specifically. The way that uh, chapter 5 and 6, remember Paul doesn't write with chapter breaks, uh, there's actually no introduction to this section. It, it begins very abruptly. Um, in fact, if you forget the chapter division and look at 5.13, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, there's, there's no connection. It just goes straight in to the next section. Now, there, there is actually a logical connection between what we have in 1 Corinthians 5 and what we have here in 1 Corinthians 6, and that is that Paul has just concluded in 1 Corinthians 5 that the Corinthians were to judge those who were within the church and not those who were outside the church. That's the final paragraph in 5, 9 through 13, but this leads to another problem that the Corinthians were facing, and that is they were subjecting themselves to those outside the church to make judgments among those who were inside the church. And so in chapter 5, Paul says, we judge those within the body, God judges those who are outside. In chapter 6, we got the problem of outsiders judging those who are inside the church. And so... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, of course, was a shock to Paul, not only because of the disgusting nature of the sexual sin mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, but also it was a shock because they were absolutely doing nothing about it. So if 1 Corinthians 5 is a shock to Paul, by the time he gets to 1 Corinthians 6, he is utterly exasperated. You know what it is to be exasperated, right? Just at your wit's end, you don't even you almost don't even know what to say when you are exasperated. And and as Paul goes into this section, first of all, he is very sharp. By that I mean he's there, there's a harshness to what he says. He is very abrupt. He is uh, expressing his frustration, his exasperation by a series of these 
rapid-fire rhetorical questions. By the way, each one of his rhetorical questions is a disguised, not so well-disguised rebuke, right? He's asking questions not to get information. He's asking questions to rebuke them in his exasperation. In fact, Gordon Fee makes this, uh, this observation about the passage. He says, the whole scene fills Paul with indignation, so much so that there's scarcely any argument at all. Now, that's somewhat of an exaggeration, but, but you do get the feel as you read through this section that Paul's asking one question after another after another, and uh, very little by way of direct argument the section is made up by statements of, of horror on Paul's part. It's made up of a series of rhetorical questions. There is sarcasm, verse 5. You, you mean to tell me you can't find one wise person among the mighty wise Corinthians that can even make a decision among you? The passage is even filled with a threat at the end. And this passage... Because of all this, it's all woven together, makes it a little bit hard to, to outline. You know, when a person is frustrated or exasperated, um, the, the, the laws of logic are not so strong and governing, right? Um, I mean, let's face it, when you're talking to somebody who is exasperated and feeling uh, intense uh, rationality and logic, Uh, are not typically the priorities. That's not to say that Paul's uh, argument here is illogical, but it is to say uh, there's no really clear structure to this section. Now, for Paul, as he deals with this situation, there, there are two things that really stand out to him. One is that the very fact that Christians are suing each other, taking each other to court, it's already a defeat. To them, regardless of what the outcome is, this is already a defeat, and it's a defeat. It's a shame to them because it is an awful witness before the very people that they're supposed to be different. And so, for Paul, as he as he as he thinks about this, as he deals with this, he is utterly exasperated because here's the church that's supposed to be presenting uh, a, a testimony, a witness for the gospel before unbelievers, and instead what the Corinthians are doing is they're just airing their dirty laundry before unbelievers and in a real sense being an awful testimony to what they're supposed to be as the church. Now, the reason I read verses 9 through 11, which should be clear to us, is because it really is the conclusion of the argument. It's going to serve a number of purposes, as we'll see. But um, one of those purposes is really an invitation to repentance for those who are engaged in this. And that'll be more clear as we move on. Um, As we look at this passage, we have to understand that civil suits are what is clearly in view here, not criminal cases. Uh, It appears from uh, some of Paul's statements, especially in his vices list, for instance, in uh, 9 through 11, that, uh, that greed and covetousness are the primary motives that are driving people to take each other to court. That's a shock, right? Does that surprise you that actually greed or covetousness would drive somebody to take somebody to court? Some things don't change, right? And so these are probably financial disputes of one sort or another. Um, Gordon Fee thinks that, that what Paul's dealing with is actually two specific Christian brothers in the uh, assembly. I I think that probably more than just a specific situation between two brothers, you probably have a pattern that is um, more widespread than just one specific incident. Now, Paul is uh, worked up over this, but he is not lacking in argument. In fact, what Paul's going to do in this section is he's going to appeal a number of times 
to eschatology, that is to a view of the end to undergird his, his ethics. In other words, our view of the future should impact our conduct in the present. Right? That, that, by the way, is one of the great benefits of eschatology, is your view of the future governs your behavior in the present. And so Paul sees the church, of course, as the great end-time community, the great eschatological community, a community of believers who are what? A part of the new creation. And it's that very reality and their very future that should determine how they are supposed to live in the present. You, you, You understand that, right? The future that God has in store for us should be such a reality to us that it shapes our lives today, right? There's a wonderful quotation by uh, Kiampa and Rosner in their commentary on 1 Corinthians. They make this point. They say, property and material possessions are of little consequence to those destined to inherit the kingdom. Once again, who Christians are, or rather will be in the future, should determine how we behave in the present. Now, what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to... His solution, in a sense, is somewhat simple. It's twofold. One, you should be looking for wise arbitrators within the church to settle these things instead of going outside. But his other solution is this, which really goes against the grain, doesn't it? Why not just suffer being wronged? Obviously, Paul wasn't American and didn't understand our rights. But do you understand that Paul's ultimate argument is going to be, forget your rights. Rather, why not be wronged instead of doing this, right? And so um, I can just tell you that this is, this is um, deeply uncomfortable, right? Try this next time. Okay, we'll, just, we'll restrict this to married people for a second. Next time there's a dispute, why not just rather be wronged? How's that sit? Does that, does that feel Right? No, it doesn't feel right, because when you're right, you've got rights, and you have to stand up for those rights. I mean, this is, this is all, what it's all about is, is standing up for yourself and not being a doormat and making sure that if the other person is in the wrong, that they know they're in the wrong, and they pay for being in the wrong, And Paul actually gives us an ethical perspective on how to live in the present that utterly defies basically everything we hold dear. All right? So, in fact, some of the commentators are so um, discombobulated by this that they spend most of their time, time figuring out how to say something different other than what Paul plainly means. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background on the Roman civil court. It's not exactly, precisely like ours. Kiampa and Rosner write, they say, ancient Roman courts could not be relied upon to administer justice impartially since they were open to bribes and were partial to the status and power of the prosecutor or defendant or both. The Roman judicial system was damaged by improper influences that made equality before the law unattainable. In fact, the principal criterion of legal privilege in the eyes of the Romans was dignitas, dignity, or honor derived from the power, style of life, and the wealth. Furthermore, going to court was very expensive and beyond the reach of most people. The system favored people of higher status. 
Although Roman jurists strove to formulate a definition of justice that would be valid for all times and for all peoples, in practice, the Roman legal system, which was controlled, of course, by the upper class, reinforced the distinctions between the classes in society, and the modern notion of equal standing in the law did not pertain. They conclude a paragraph later, civil litigation was inevitably vexatious. It is little wonder that the church in Corinth suffered strife, jealousy, and discord with members entangled in such circumstances. So in other words, the ancient Roman court system favored those who had money, and it favored those who had power, and it favored those of of higher status. Which, of course, the idea is, is is that everybody is supposed to be equal before the law. But if you have the money to pay off the judge, then that ultimately is what mattered. So, as we come to this passage, it's based around a series of questions. And so I'm going to kind of follow those questions as, uh, as this providing some structure for us. And question number one, and this follows, I'm just using Gordon Fee's outline basically, uh, the basic ingredients of the problem. So verse one, which begins very abruptly from from, uh, chapter five, he says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The, the, the great thing is, is that in the Greek text, the, the very first word, which is in what we call the emphatic position, this is, this is where the emphasis falls, is actually the verb dare. <laughs> dare any one of you. It's absolutely emphatic. In fact, uh, Gordon Fee says, um, says, the gall of such a one, right? So does any one of you dare, does any one of you have the gall having a matter, that is a legal matter, with or against one another? We're talking here about a civil case, in all likelihood having to do with some sort of financial dispute. Does any one of you dare to go to law or to court before the unrighteous? And of course, knowing the rest of the context, the answer is yes, some were daring to do that. Some had the gall to do that. But here in verse 1, we actually see Paul's fundamental objection You have a matter, you have a legal dispute with someone else that's going to be identified as a brother in the passage, and then you dare to actually take that matter before, then notice this, the unrighteous. Now here, Paul, the bare minimum of what Paul is saying is, you're taking these legal disputes before unbelievers, i.e. the unrighteous. Paul could actually be implying a little bit more than just mere unbelievers though, right? Because notice he doesn't just say, you take it before unbelievers. He says you take it before the, notice, the unrighteous. The implication may of course be that you take it before a corrupt system run by corrupt people. Instead of the saints. That is, instead of believers. And so, the problem is that such actions, I have a dispute with, uh, brother A has a dispute with brother B, and so brother A is going to take brother B to court before the unrighteous judge and in an unrighteous system, as it were. And such actions actually end up doing a number of things. They end up minimizing who they were as God's people, right? But to make matters worse, they're not acting like God's people before the very people they're supposed to be a witness to. 
In fact, what Paul's going to do in this section is he's going to unfold that there, there is an absurdity to taking a, an ordinary, mundane, earthly matter and turning around and having two Christians, two uh, followers of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit who are a part of the age to come and actually going before an unbeliever to get a judgment between them. There is an absurdity to it. The very people who are going to be judged by the Lord are being allowed to make judgments between God's people. Paul, you know, for some reason, this doesn't, this doesn't sound as awful to us as it sounded to Paul. Maybe it's because we are a part of such a litigious society that this is just this is just commonplace for us but for paul this was shocking because it was turning things upside down and it was denying who they really were and it was denying the truth of what was going to happen in the future. Now, for Paul, that's a big deal. For us, maybe we don't care enough about our witness. Maybe we don't care enough about living up to being who we are called to be. For Paul, this was a huge deal. And so, point number two, questions two and three... Minimizing lawsuits in the present age in light of the eschatological realities. So the first question is, do you not know? And we've already seen this a number of times. When Paul asks the question, do you not know, is he actually saying, I'm about to share a fact with you. You may not know this. Is that the point? No. What is the point of do you not know? The point is, you should know this. You should know this well. And you are apparently willfully ignorant of this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, how many of you actually did not really know that before I just read it? (laughs) This is an amazing thing. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? world in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22 it's very interesting in the the Hebrew text which is reflected in our English Bibles it says that that God made judgment in favor of the saints but in the Septuagint which would have been the Bible that Paul used it says judgment was given to the saints. And of course, we know in Revelation chapter 20 that that, um, God's people, Christ's people, actually are seated on the throne with him in judgment. We know, for instance, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that Jesus tells his apostles that they will actually sit on 12 thrones and do what? Judge the 12 tribes, all right? And so Paul seems to think that this is is a point of eschatology that they actually should have down, and that is they're going to to, to judge the world. Some have asked whether or not this contradicts 5, 9 through 13, where Paul says, we don't judge outsiders, and the answer is no. It's not a contradiction, because in that passage, Paul was speaking of present judgment. You don't go judging outsiders right now, but what he's speaking of here is this picture of, of the saints being involved in the final judgment of the world, In other words, I'm I'm almost 
positive that the idea is is that by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ returns to judge the nations in, in power and glory, as those in union with him, as those who will reign with him, we actually participate in that judgment with him. And Paul turns around and he says, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? And then he turns around and asks this next question. And that is, if the world is going to be judged by you, are you not competent to try trivial cases? You can see that Paul does have a level of of frustration here, and he's, he's basically using a greater to lesser argument. You're going to be involved in judging the world. If that's true, are you telling me that you are not competent enough to judge minor issues now? Are you not competent? Are you not fit? Uh, the, Paul literally says, are you unworthy to judge Trivial issues? This passage actually has a number of challenges to it, and and one of those is is right here in verse 2. He says, are you not competent to, and then the New American Standard says, to constitute the smallest law courts, the idea could be, uh, are you unworthy, uh, literally it reads, are you unworthy of the smallest, and it could be courts or cases. Either way, the point ends up being clear, and that is, in light of the future realities of judgment, does that not put into perspective the present smallness of what you're dealing with and your ability to deal with it as God's people. Questions four through six, which we have in verses three and four, minimizing pagan courts in light of eschatological realities. Notice verse three, do you not know? So once again, and by the way, when Paul asks that question, do you not know, there is in fact a level of frustration that he is expressing. Do you not know that we're going to judge the world? Do you not know that we're going to judge angels? This is interesting, don't you think? Have you ever thought that you're going to be involved in the judgment of angels? It's not typically something that gets put into our our detailed eschatology charts, right? We judge the angels, right? (laughs) But yet, Paul says you should know this. Now, I I have to assume that this, this ends up being, at least to some degree, a significant part of Paul's eschatological teaching on the end that we don't necessarily have a lot of information on. Most of the commentators think that what he has in view here is a reference to fallen angels, 2 Peter 2.4, Jude verse 6, those that are actually being held presently in bonds. But what, he's, what he does here is he actually ends up intensifying the very previous point, and that is not only are we going to judge the world, we're actually going to be involved in the judgment of angels. I'm assuming that the fallen angel theory is is correct, and and what Paul is saying is, is, listen, on that last great day, You not only are going to be reigning with Christ, but you're going to be sitting with him in judgment. And you're going to be sitting in judgment with Christ over the nations, over the world. And in fact, you're even going to be sitting in judgment over the angels who have rebelled. And then he asks this fifth question. 
how much more, i.e., should you be able to judge the matters of this life? It could be uh, emphatic here, something like, um, we will judge angels, let alone, or not to mention everyday affairs, um, but regardless of how this this actually should be uh, translated, Paul's view or Paul's uh, uh, statement is clear, and that is that the matters of this life, which would be ordinary daily affairs, they're not insignificant. Paul, Paul's, not, Paul's not saying here, um, don't pay any attention to the matters of this present life because they don't mean anything. That's not what he's saying at all. It's, it's not like he's saying, don't bother polishing the brass on the Titanic. What he is doing, though, is he's saying in light of the future and in light of what we're going to be involved in and engaged in, shouldn't we be able to take care of these present and by comparison, much smaller issues ourselves? The conclusion that he draws from the question ends up being another question. He says, so... If you have, probably the best way to translate it is, if you have daily life law courts, okay, courts designated to take care of these daily life issues, if you have such cases, if you have such issues, if you have such disputes, verse 4 is the, the hardest verse in the whole section, The next question goes like this, at least the way the New American Standard does it. So you need to take a look there at your Bibles. So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, New American Standard says this, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? The ESV actually tries to smooth that out a little bit, because what the New American Standard sounds like is if you have these law courts that deal with these uh, ordinary details and matters of life, uh, do you turn around and appoint as judges people that, um, uh, that are of no account in the church? That is unbelieving, unrighteous judges. ESV does this a little differently. He says, the ESV says, do you lay them, that would be the cases, before those who have no standing in the church? You got to go back a little ways to find the alternative. In fact, I was thinking back, our, our Tuesday Greek class has been reading through 1 Corinthians and all we do is just read the, the Greek text. And as we came to this part, it seemed more natural to me to take it the way that the old King James took it without consulting any versions or translations. The old King James says, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, Set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. That's different, right? That's different. So you're, are, so I hate to ask this, but you're, are you tracking? So on the one hand, the NAS is saying, why do you appoint people as judges who are of no account in the church to settle these court cases? ESV says, why are you laying these cases before those who have no standing in the church? King James, actually the Geneva Bible, which was the favorite of the Puritans, which precedes, by the way, the King James, does the same way. If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, and then this, it's a command, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. In other words, take those who are not of the high status in the church 
take those who seem to be the least esteemed in the church. You know, jumping ahead to the body metaphor, take the toes of the body. Appoint them. Even the uh, uh, older edition of the NIV. So if you want to press charges in matters like that, appoint as judges members of the church who aren't very important. It's, it's actually really, really hard to tell which direction to go because the Greek is incredibly difficult. It's very unlikely that the Corinthians were actually appointing judges, as New American Standard seems to imply. The ESV tries to clear it up by, by dealing with the verb a little differently. Um, the, the challenge of trying to understand what does it mean to be no account in the church is Paul talking about secular judges. Actually, the language is a lot stronger than just, by the way, no account of the church. Or is he talking about believers in the church who are just not esteemed by everybody? In other words, they're not the powerful, the wealthy. In other words, what Paul might be saying is something like this. When the somethings and the somebodies have something really big to, uh, to, uh, to settle, some sort of big dispute, get the nothings and the nobodies to decide. That nicks things up, wouldn't it? In other words, you know, pick the people that don't have a dog in the fight. So perhaps the idea is, listen, in light of the future... For us as Christians, how can you take law court issues of this life before those who have no standing in the church and then have them make a ruling? That kind of fits the context. But maybe even a little better is you have these matters. Why not pick the nothings and the nobodies to make the decisions? Now, verse 5 is the very first indicative of the whole paragraph so far. Everything's been a question, basically. Paul writes, and he says, I say this to your shame. Obviously, Paul was not very sensitive here. I mean, who in the world would, would actually say something to shame somebody? Well, evidently, Paul thought on occasion it was a pretty good thing to do. Um, You might remember back in chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says, I don't write these things to shame you. You remember that? But to exhort you. Here he's saying, no, my purpose is to shame you. (laughs) Forget this fatherly exhortation. I want you to feel miserable about what you're doing. Right? That is appropriate at times, right? I, I really want you to feel bad about what you're doing. I want you to have a sense of shame over this. And so here is, here's what he turns around and says. And this is, this is actually somewhat humorous because this is, this is Pauline sarcasm at its finest. Is there not one wise person among you who is able to judge or decide between his brothers? You know what makes this so funny, don't you? Remember chapter 4, when Paul was waxing sarcastically eloquent. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are, New American Standard, prudent. You are wise in Christ. We're weak, you're strong. You're distinguished, we're without honor. Oh, you Corinthians, you're so unbelievably wise. Remember, this is part of the whole Corinthian problem, is that they have a self-image of of superlative wisdom. We are the wise, we're the spiritual, we're the mature, we're the ones with all kinds of knowledge. They had a self-perception that they were virtually, spiritually self-sufficient creatures. And Paul turns around and he says... If you have to go to court with each other before unbelievers, how wise can you possibly be? 
If you can't find one wise person in your assembly to make a decision between brothers on the ordinary mundane things of life, how wise can you possibly be? If you have to depend upon the unrighteous who don't know God and don't understand God's law, how wise can you possibly be? If you want to subject yourself to a a court system that looks upon those with dignity and honor and wealth and power and status, and they're going to make their decision based on those principles, how wise can you possibly be? You mean to tell me you can't scrape up one wise person who can settle a dispute? This is part of what Paul's doing. <laughs> He's telling them, you, you, you are really, no matter what you might think about yourself, you really are lacking wisdom. Now, when Paul says this, Is there not among you one wise man who's able to decide? You might remember an episode in Israel's life. Um, Moses is visited by his father-in-law, Jethro. You remember this, Exodus chapter 18. And and what is Moses doing from from, uh, sunrise to sunset? He's judging, he's hearing all kinds of disputes. And no doubt there's Jethro, his father-in-law, sitting there and, um, you know, hearing some of the most petty, unbelievably mundane uh, 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 arguments and disputes. And here's Moses, the leader of Israel, and Jethro does what? Jethro actually encourages him to delegate that judicial authority and, and, and actually, in a sense, have, um, you know, those who are over hundreds and those who are over fifties and those, and then the more difficult cases, you, you take them. And of course, Moses follows that advice, doesn't he? And in Deuteronomy chapter one, when the children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land, second generation, Moses is actually instructing them on how to choose wise judges from among themselves. It's people that won't take a bribe. It's people who are impartial. It's people who are advocates for widows and orphans and so forth. So Paul is, what he's doing here is he's actually drawing from that Old Testament principle of appointing judges from among yourselves who can judge wisely and make discerning decisions among God's people. And so Paul says, can you not find one person that can do this? And then he turns around and states the fact, which of course should be to their shame again. But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. So what you have in verse 6 at the end there is just simply you have a reiteration of the fundamental problem as it exists back in verse 1. It's probably just an exclamation here, right? Um, New American Standard has it as a, uh, as a question, but I think that it's probably uh, an, uh, an exclamation where Paul is, in a sense, expressing his shock. You can't find one wise person among you, and instead, what do you do? Brother takes brother to court, and that before an unbeliever. Now that brings us, verses 7 and 8, to the second indicative in the whole section, which is this. This is already a complete loss for you. In other words, the fact of verse 6, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Here's, here's Paul's statement. This is already a complete 
loss for you. So no matter what the outcome, Paul says, no matter which way that unbelieving judge may decide, the fact is, is that this is already a defeat. The loss is actually in the lawsuit itself. That you have disputes with each other, I suppose, is is a normal part of this fallen life. But the fact that you can't settle those disputes as God's people and in turn have to go before an unbeliever, that is already a loss in and of itself. When Paul says that in verse 7, you have to understand that he's saying it completely apart from, you know, who's in the right, who's in the wrong. He's going to, he's going to get to that part in a second, but, but, but you have to understand that what Paul is saying is by virtue of the fact that you have two believers standing in a court of law before an un, uh, unrighteous judge is in and of itself a loss for the people of God. And then Paul's questions 8 and 9, imagine that, nine questions already in this section. This, this, this is what just absolutely grates us the wrong way. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded because it was mine because it belonged to me because I was right I mean Paul actually says something here that is that is so not just countercultural to us but it is absolutely counterintuitive is it not This is a, this is an this is such an absolute utter loss for the people of God I will tell you a better solution than going to court before an unbeliever just be wronged I'll tell you a better solution than airing your dirty laundry before an unbelieving court? Just be defrauded. How many of you think, that sounds so awesome, I can't wait to do that. I can't wait for the opportunity just to be wronged. Uh, It goes against the grain of our Adamic Nature, right? It just does. Now, Paul is asking the either the actual or would-be plaintiff at this point, why not just rather take the loss? Instead of, instead of, suffering loss of witness and testimony for Christ, why not just suffer whatever monetary loss? You know what he's saying? Why not rather be cheated? Because I don't like to be cheated. Why why not rather just give up your rights? Why not rather lose that instead of losing your witness? Do, do, do you get a you get a feel for Paul's priorities here of what ultimately is important? I could imagine because it's not like we haven't heard these things, right, Mr. Rice? I can't do that. I'm taking money out of my account that is food on the table for my kids. Well, I know, but the person's a brother. Well, the Bible also says I have to provide for my own. Huh. Funny, I 
read this to say, why not rather be wronged? Which actually will include monetary loss. Could it be that our unwillingness to suffer monetary loss instead of loss of our witness is because we value money more than our witness? And we value our possessions more than our witness. And we value our rights more than our witness. And so brother A gladly sues brother B. Why? Because he wronged me. Gordon Fee, who really at times is incredibly uncomfortable to read. He says... For one living in the old age, where selfishness in all of its sordid as well as domesticated forms still rules, one can give a score of reasons why not. But they all begin with the word but. As in, but you don't know what he did to me. And they are all motivated by some form of self-protection or self gain. So you see what he's saying for those living. So you've got the old age and the new age, right? So those, those who live in the old age, selfishness, either in its nice domesticated forms or in its really rotten sordid forms actually is what rules. And so where selfishness rules, you can give all kinds of answers to why not rather be wronged. And where selfishness rules, you can give all kinds of answers that sound really good and really, you know, principled as to why not rather be defrauded. But Fee is careful to point out it all begins with the word but and is motivated by self-preservation or self-gain. I will tell you that if you take the New Testament ethics seriously, it will make you a salmon swimming against the current of our culture, will it not? Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The third indicative, verse 8, Paul turns around and says, but you wrong and defraud in this a brother. Wow. So Paul moves from the plaintiff, as it were, who he encourages to rather be wronged or be defrauded. Now he moves to the one who is doing the wrong. And he says, but you wrong and defraud. And then it's almost as emphatic. And, and this you do to a brother. Paul's now dealing with the one who originally did the wrong. And, and, and so that you, plural, you wrong, that is to act in an unjust manner to do wrong, and you defraud, that is to take, uh, to cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit means. And so Paul's not just saying, hey, just roll over, don't worry about it. He actually goes after both, right? He goes after the one who's, who's suing for his rights and for what's rightfully his. And he says, hey, why not rather be wronged? And then he turns around and he says, and, and I can't believe it. Some of you are defrauding and wronging a brother. The next section, which we'll look at in more detail next week, 9 through 11. We use this section, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, usually separated from this context, don't we? We say, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived in the fornicators, etc. And, and, and I'm not saying that we misuse the text, but what I am saying is a lot of times we somewhat divorce it from the context here which is Christians suing each other. 
The paragraph, no doubt, is tied back with chapter 5 and chapter 6. But what is happening here is that Paul is using this as as a call to repentance by reminding them that the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he reminds them what their true identity is. But you were washed, justified, sanctified in the name of our God and the Lord Jesus, so forth. So the idea is, is that what Paul wants them to see is that just... Wow, this is, this is awful for us. Just as sure as fornicators and homosexuals and the effeminate do not inherit the kingdom of heaven, neither do swindlers or the covetous or the greedy. Not only do those who practice the unrighteousness of, of gross immorality as seen in 1 Corinthians 5, not only do they not enter, but those that actually go about defrauding and wronging people don't enter either. Do you not know the un Righteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived. You know, one of the problems with Paul's vice lists is that for the most part, we give a hearty amen to the yucky sins That's right. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen and amen. Well, neither will thieves. By the way, there's a lot of different ways to be a thief than just to strong arm somebody and take take what doesn't belong to you. Right? You can steal time from your employer by not doing the work that you've been contracted to do. Why wouldn't that be stealing just as sure as taking something off a shelf at a store? Nor the covetous. You mean those that have an inordinate desire to have things that don't belong to them? I thought that was the American dream. Nor drunkards, nor revilers. Okay, drunkards and revilers, those are the icky sins. Oh, and then swindlers. Oh, you know, the kind of people who wrong and defraud to get stuff that doesn't belong to them. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this is really, this is Paul's invitation to repentance, isn't it? Right? That, and that is, if, if this is you, you need to repent. Why? Verse, such were some of you. The, the, listen, Corinthians. The clothes don't fit anymore. That's what you used to be. That's not what you are now. So Repent. Such were some of you. Yeah, you used to be swindlers. You, used, you, don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because that's what you were in the old life. Guess what? You have a new life now. You were sanctified. You were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. Well, I'm finding that 1 Corinthians is actually an incredibly uncomfortable book, isn't it? It's one of those books where you kind of think, ah, yeah, we can go through 1 Corinthians because, I mean, thank God we're not the Corinthians. And yet you get stuff like this and you realize that it says a lot to us. Let me just make a few points in conclusion. And the first is, is this, this is dealing with Brothers, this is dealing with fellow Christians, all right? 
This is not to say that there is no place for courts. And this is not to say that there is no place for disputes being settled in a legal manner. Okay. But what it is to say is that Christians are not supposed to sue Christians. Christians are not to take other Christians to court. And so, Paul's point is, the reason we don't do this is because we cannot, we should not, air our dirty laundry before the world and hurt our testimony before the world because Christians taking Christians to court is shameful because it diminishes gospel testimony in the world. We should be concerned with the way that the world looks at us and what the world thinks of us. Paul urges either taking care of such matters in-house using a wise arbitrator or just accept being wronged. How can, how can you find the moral fortitude to accept being wronged? Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, somebody's wronged you. Somebody that's a Christian has wronged you. And you know that you could take them to court and you know that you could recoup everything that that they took from you um, and... Instead, you decide, I'm not going to do that. And so you find somebody who is, uh, is, is a wise, godly arbitrator. And let's say that this professing uh, Christian turns around and says, well, uh, I'm not going to abide by that. Where do you find the moral fortitude to say, okay, I, I actually would rather be wronged then take you to court. Well, here's where you find the moral fortitude to do that. God sees it. God knows it. And God is just. And it may not be cleared up today or this week or this year, but it will most certainly be cleared up on judgment day. The question is, Do you have enough long-term confidence in God that he will right all wrongs on the last day? We, We want our justice and we want it right now. Unless, of course, it's God's justice against us, then that can be delayed as long as possible. The fortitude to be wronged comes in knowing that the God of all the earth will do right. And you can leave it with him. An accurate view of the future will help us keep perspective on the present. Remember, As I read to you earlier, property and material possessions are of little consequence to those destined to inherit the kingdom of God. Once again, who Christians are, or rather will be in the future, should determine how we behave in the present. My goodness, what a passage. What a passage. May God help us to value our witness in such a way 
that were willing to lose some material possession instead of losing our witness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we, we feel the, the pain of this truth. We pray that you'd give us the grace to live by it. Father, we thank you that within the church you have provided those who are wise, those who are godly, those who can help. And Father, we pray that you would help us to so value our witness that we're willing to devalue the things that this world counts as valuable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.